0: This is Revelations Radio News with Andrew Hoffman and Tim Kilkenny on the Revelations Radio Network.
1: Today is Wednesday, October 12, 2011. What's going on in the news, Brother Andrew?
0: Well, if you can answer this question, you might understand what's going on in the news, Tim. Okay. It's a question from Ron Paul. Who else is on Obama's secret kill list? According to the Fifth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, Americans are never to be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. The Constitution is not some aspirational statement of values allowing exceptions when convenient, but rather it is the law of the land. It is the basis of our republic and our principal bulwark against tyranny. Last week's assassination of two American citizens, Anwar al and Samir Khan, is an outrage and a criminal act carried out by the President and his administration. If the law protecting us against government-sanctioned assassination can be voided when there is a, quote, really bad American, is there any meaning left to the rule of law in the United States? If, as we learned last week, a secret government committee, not subject to congressional oversight or judicial review, can now target certain Americans for assassination, under what moral authority do we presume to lecture the rest of the world about um, about protecting human rights? Didn't we just bomb Libya into oblivion under the auspices of protecting the civilians from being targeted by their government? Timothy McVeigh was certainly a threat, as were Nidal Hassan and Jared Lee Loughner. They killed people in front of many witnesses. They took up arms against their government in a literal way, yet were still afforded trials. These constitutional protections are in place because our founders realized it is a very serious matter to deprive any individual of life or liberty. Our outrage against even the obviously guilty is not, worthy, is not worth the sacrifice of the rule of law. Al-Awlaki has been outspoken against the United States, and we are told he encouraged violence against Americans. We do not know that he actually committed any acts of violence. Ironically, he was once invited to the Pentagon as part of an outreach to moderate Muslims after 9-11. As the U.S. attacks against Muslims in the Middle East and Central Asia expanded, it is said that he became more fervent and radical in his opposition to U.S. foreign policy. Many cheer this killing because they believe that in a time of war, due process is not necessary, not even for citizens, and especially not for those overseas. However, there has been no formal declaration of war, and certainly not one against Yemen. The post-9-11 authorization for force would not have covered these two Americans because no one is claiming they had any connection to that attack. al was on a kill list compiled by a secret panel within President Obama's National Security Council and Justice Department. How many more American citizens are on that list? They won't tell us. What are the criteria? They won't tell us. Where is the evidence? They won't tell us. Al lakis father tried desperately to get the administration to at least allow his son to have legal representation to challenge the kill order. He was denied. Rather than give him his day in court, the administration, behind closed doors, served as prosecutor, judge, jury, and executioner. The most worrisome aspect of this is that any new powers this administration accrues will serve as precedent for future administrations. Even those who completely trust this administration must understand that if this usurpation of power and denial of due process is is allowed to stand, these powers will remain to be expanded on by the next administration and then the next. Will you trust them? History shows that once a population gives up its rights, they are not easily won back. Beware. And what Ron Paul uh, meant to put at the end of that article uh, but he left out as he said it was. It's probably Tim Kilkenny that's that's on the also on Obama's secret killer. So I've, I'm sorry to break the bad news to you, Tim.
1: Yikes! Yikes! So I'm, I got to be looking out for drones when I'm driving around.
0: Yeah, I mean drones. You know those those new blimps they're working on, supposedly just for surveillance, but they might be dropping bombs out of those too. So. Gotta watch your back.
1: I swear they're only doing that just so they can perfectly match the picture of like 1984. Didn't they have like surveillance blimps? I swear.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's what, it's Hillary Clinton's favorite book. There so, you go. Yeah.
1: Is it is it really?
0: Yeah. That's wow. her. In fact, uh, that is what she. I don't want to mix two different stories together, but someone gave. I think it was Hillary Clinton gave that book either to
1: uh oh that's right. She gave it to uh was it it was Putin or somebody
0: uh I think the person from Spain maybe right um but then I know the Queen of England also gave out nineteen eighty four to people i mean it's just like a sick joke you know like the the most evil big brother people are passing out nineteen eighty four but anyway. Speaking of Hillary Clinton, do you like that segue, Tim? (laughs) Let's let's take a look at this next story. Uh, Breaking New Evidence shows Hillary a mastermind behind Gunwalker, which is another name for the Fast and Furious program. All right. This came out of the Examiner, which is pretty much uh, you could just start writing for the Examiner. It's not really a mainstream publication, but... Um, this article seems to make quite a bit of sense. It says, Last week it was reported that the State Department and Secretary of State Hillary Clinton were deeply involved in the scandal known as Operation Fast and Furious or Project Gunwalker. Today, however, new evidence has surfaced indicating that not only was Hillary deeply involved in the scandal, but was one of the masterminds behind it. According to investigative citizen journalist uh, Mike Vanderbilt, Sources close to the development of the Gunwalker Scheme state that early on, Hillary and her trusted associate at State, Andrew J. Shapiro, no relation to me, devised at least part of the framework that would later become Operation Fast and Furious. It was Shapiro who first described the details of the proposed scheme early in 2009, just after the Obama administration took office. Vanderbilt relates the following. My sources say that as Hillary's trusted subordinate, it was Shapiro, Shapiro who first described the Secretary of State to the Secretary of State the details of what has become the Gunwalker scandal. The precise extent to which Hillary Clinton's knowledge of and responsibility for the Gunwalker plot lies within the memories of these two men, Shapiro and Steinberg, sources say. The sources also express dismay that the ISA committee is apparently restricting itself to the Department of Justice and not venturing further afield. The House Foreign Affairs Committee, they say, needs to summon these two men and their subordinates, especially at the Mexico desk at the state, and question them under oath as to what Hillary Clinton knew about the origins of the gunwalker scandal and when she knew it. There's another thing those sources agree upon. The CIA, they say, knows, quote, everything about the Mexican hat dance that became the Gunwalker scandal. And then just kind of an addendum, this, the Steinberg mentioned in the above quote is Hillary Clinton's former de- deputy secretary of state who was appointed directly by Barack Obama and was considered from the start to be an Obama man whose objective was to carry out the wishes of the president in the State Department. Hillary had said of Steinberg, um, Clinton said Steinberg had been a fixture at meetings with the National Security Council, or NSC, and frequently represented the U.S. State Department at the White House. That statement is key. Hillary herself stayed out of all meetings dealing with strategy concerning the euphemism the administration used to designate Gunwalker. Quote, strategy meetings on Mexico and the problem of drug and gun trafficking. (laughs) So that means how do you traffic guns and drugs? Uh, (laughs) Hillary's absence would give the impression that she had no connection to the scheme while making sure that her views were represented by Steinberg and Shapiro, both of whom were fully complicit with the details that developed concerning how to pad statistics on U.S. guns in Mexico. According to sources, Hillary was obsessed with gun statistics that would prove that 90% of the firearms used by Mexican criminals come from the United States, and I remember her claiming that several times. As previously reported, that meme, repeated incessantly by Democratic senators, Barack Obama, certain members of the ATF, Janet Napolitano, and Hillary Clinton, was patently and blatantly false. The fact that they all knew it was false was borne out by the lengths to which each of the above co-conspirators went to attempt to prove that the 90% figure was true. And then this is back to Vanderbilt. My sources say that this battle of the statistics was taken very seriously by all players, the White House, state, and justice. Yet why was this game of statistics so important to the players? If some weapons from the American civilian market were making it to Mexico into the hand of drug gang killers, that was bad enough. What was was the importance of insisting that it was 90%, 80%, or finally 70%? Would Would such statistics make any difference to the law enforcement tactics necessary to curtail them? No. This statistics mania is similar to the focus on body counts in Vietnam. Yet if Vietnam body counts were supposed to be a measure of how we were winning that war, the focus on the 90% meme was certainly not designed to be a measure of how we were winning the war against our own cartels, but rather by what overwhelming standard we were losing. Why? Recall that what the whistleblower ATF agents told us right after this scandal broke in the wake of the death of Brian Terry. ATF source concerned walking guns to Mexico to pad statistics. Thus, from the beginning, the scheme was to pad statistics on U.S. guns in Mexico in order to be in a strengthened position to call for gun bans and strict gun control at a time when it was politically unpopular. Further, the scheme would involve a made-up statistic out of thin air, 90%, which then had to be proved by using civilian gun retailers along the southern border as unsuspecting ponds to walk U.S. guns into Mexico by ATF agents, straw purchasers and others with connections to Mexican drug cartels. And the evidence points to the fact that Hillary Clinton was one of the original administration officials who was in the loop on the scheme from the very beginning. All right. And I, th- I think that article is interesting for a couple of reasons. Uh, it shows kind of the Orwellian creating the false reality, you know, you come up with the statistic first and then try to create the reality behind it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also just shows, I mean, that is a false flag. If you're, if you're like creating the problem and then blaming it on someone else, that's, that's a false flag attack. And I mean, people died because of the, because of those actions. Um, all for a political agenda. So I think, you know, if you go back to... It's a small-scale version. I mean, it's a pretty large scale, but it's a small-scale version of a 9-11 type thing where people in the government uh, took actions that they knew would kill Americans and kill lots of other people too and in order to further their political agenda. So I think it's, you know, it just is another pull in that argument of, Oh, the government would never do anything to hurt us or the government would never do anything like that. So what do you think about that one? Tim?
1: I just can't get over the name, the fast and the furious thing. You know, it's, it doesn't surprise me at all that, that, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton's kind of projecting her old, her own, uh, politics on, on, uh, facts or, <laughs> or <laughs> the appearance of facts. I think, uh, yeah it's kind of par par for the course for uh for her and uh her husband uh who uh, I don't know they just uh special special tools of the elite i guess
0: yep oh yeah for sure there's you know definitely sold out to the new world order there sure sure all right this story and we've talked several times about the wonderful Jeffersonian democracy celebrated by you know, Anderson Cooper and others in the mainstream media that sprung up in Egypt just because of the protesters. So everything's happy now. uh, And out of this wonderful utopia, we have this story. Armored vehicles plow into protesting Christians in Cairo. At least 24 people have been killed in clashes in Cairo Sunday as Christians angry over a recent church attack fought with hardline Muslims and Egyptian security forces. And you can go to YouTube and watch the video of these huge armored vehicles ramming full speed just right over people. It's just absolutely horrific. So in Egypt, uh, you know, where we funded this, this opposition movement and our media applauded it, now Christians are getting run over in the streets. So that's, that's progress, I guess.
1: Sure. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I was just looking. I got uh, Voice of the Martyrs actually had the same story. Okay, uh, they they ran it basically say, "I'd like to let you know that millions of Egyptian Christians will go out to the streets all over Egypt from all cities to demonstrate against the army leaders because of the video." A Voice of the Martyr contact wrote the day before the protest. The Muslims, the Muslim group and the Salafi movement are threatening the Christians, saying that they do not have any rights in this country. We do not know what, what could happen tomorrow, but we decided to go out and use our voices against the persecution. Uh, the military fired at demonstrators when the protests began Sunday afternoon, and videos posted online showed increased violence as military vehicles ran over protesters. According to Voice of the Martyr Contacts, the Egyptian military eventually attacked the hospital where injured Christians were being treated and even tried to kill hospital employees international news agencies reported that at least 24 people have been killed including at least 17 Christians the violence began after Muslim extremists attacked a recently rebuilt Christian Church in Sohang near Cairo the governor of Sohag protected the church the church's attackers and said if the Muslims did not destroy the church on that day I will go destroy it myself shocked by the governor's comment the Christians held a demonstration at a a TV and radio building, and the Egyptian army responded to the demonstrations. A voice of the martyr contacts said they were very tough in beating and attacking the Christians instead of restoring their rights. This situation is too hard and really unbelievable. We are waiting for the Lord to show mercy upon the martyrs and their family. Please keep praying for us and our beloved friends everywhere. Please pray.
0: Yep, so there we go.
1: That's our uh, Jeffersonian uh, democracy that we've installed over there.
0: Absolutely. Tears of, of joy and happiness in the mainstream media there. You know, it got rid of Mubarak who was, uh, who refused to put in, uh, you know, abortions and, and Planned Parenthood type stuff over there. He refused to go along with the eugenics. You know, I mean, and he was a, he was a dictator too. I'm not saying he was good, but he was not going along with all the New World Order agenda, so they wiped him out and, and, have the army junta, who was really, I mean, kind of already in power behind the scenes to begin with, and just let him go around now wiping out Christians. And, you know, there's there's no outrage in our mainstream media for what's supposedly, you know, is supposedly a, a Christian nation. But there's, you know, <laughs> we're not saying, oh, now we've got to go invade Egypt to protect the civilians that are actually being killed over there. Uh, no, it's, you know, that's kind of out of the news now, just propaganda is only useful if it's getting you to just support violence, if not to actually resist it there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I actually saw a bumper sticker the other day that said, uh, fight like an Egyptian. And it was basically, it was a bunch of hands in the air, like protesting and, and, uh, it said fight like an Egyptian. So, you know,
0: totally, totally worked, man. Nothing. You know, and Occupy Wall Street, they might be able to do something amazing like that here. (laughs) Yeah. So, so, all right. Uh, I don't really know how to make this a segue, but this is definitely an interesting couple stories. First of all, some good news in the uh, underwear bomber trial. It says, Underwear Bomber calls Haskell as defense witness. Oh, you my
1: think? goodness.
0: Oh, my goodness. He's going to call him up there on the stand, and he's going to tell the truth about government involvement, and it's going to lead to all these other things coming out. And then our next story, uh, Kurt Haskell says he will sue feds in Underwear Bomber case. And the reason why he's going to go ahead and sue them in civil court is because what did the Underwear Bomber do, Tim? <laughs> he pled guilty. He said, "Oh, forget that whole thing about calling Kurt Haskell and going through with the trial. I'm going to plead guilty if you let me read a six-minute speech in the courtroom."
1: Oh, I see. I see. Wow, yeah. that's that's a uh, wow. That is uh, that's a, a direct result of waterboarding. I mean, wait,
0: what? <laughs> wait, wait a second. <laughs> no, he he hates America so much, Tim, that in order For the opportunity to read a six-minute speech, he's going to go to the gas chamber, willingly. I mean, that's, you know, that's how much he hates America. That's what we're supposed to believe anyway. Okay, so let me actually read this second story. I won't read the first one since it's a little, it unfortunately didn't happen. Appearing on the Alex Jones Show today, Michigan attorney Kurt Haskell said he plans to file a civil lawsuit against the government in the underwear bomber case now that Umar Farouk Abdul-Mutalab has suddenly reversed course and decided to plead guilty. (laughs) Abdul-Mutalab's reversal now means that Detroit Attorney Kurt Haskell's contention that the plot was, as in almost every other terror case made public, a product of government entrapment, and that the U.S. intelligence establishment was involved in the aborted attack, will now remain buried, at least for the time being. Um, Paul Joseph Watson wrote earlier today as news of the reversal was reported. Abdul Muttalab entered a plea of not guilty eight months ago at the start of his trial on charges he attempted to use a weapon of mass destruction, conspired to commit an act of terrorism and attempted murder. The corporate media at- immediately attempted to cover the government's effort to shut ch- down the case and prevent Haskell from testifying by claiming Abdul Muttalib had changed course in order to have the opportunity to read a six-minute speech to the courtroom in which he said his crimes had been payback for U.S. military killings of people in Afghanistan, Iraq, and elsewhere. So I I exploded a fizzle bomb that didn't actually go off in my pants to pay back America. <laughs> End of story. All right. Kurt Haskell said the lawsuit will allow him to subpoena witnesses and ask questions. He told Alex Jones he was primarily interested in getting some more truth out of the case now that the government has moved to shut down the release of further imp- information, in particular the identity of the well-dressed Indian man who escorted Abdul Muttalib to the flight in Amsterdam on Christmas Day 2009. Alex noted that it is now the government policy to murder suspects like the underwear bombers alleged handler, and Pentagon dinner to guest Anwar al-Awlaki instead of bringing them to trial. Because of this and the government's habitual lies and deception, lawsuits like the one Kurt Haskell will file against the government are of particular importance. All right, so that is something to keep an eye on there. Hopefully, goes forward, they have to testify and what have you. Um... And, he, I mean, he's the right person to do that, too. He is a lawyer. He can obviously do a lot of the work himself. Um, you know, it's not like you or I would have to hire a lawyer and go broke, you know, trying to bring the case to court. So, it's, uh, I don't know. I'm at least a little hopeful that, not that the U.S. government will be found guilty, but at least more will come out because of that whole process.
1: All right. What's next? Will the U.S. – Exploit dubious terror case and attack Iran.
0: Well, they haven't yet, but this is this is certainly a dubious terror case, which is you know a favorite entree into war, and obviously they've they've been promoting war in Iran for a long time.
1: This is from uh, Kurt Nimmo says the Obama administration plans to use an unproven accusation leveled against Iran to mount a new international sanctions campaign and possibly attack the country. On Tuesday, the Justice Department announced it had uncovered a plot by Iran to enlist a member of a Mexican drug cartel to kill a Saudi Arabia's envoy to Washington, D.C. The FBI and the DEA uncovered the plot, according to officials. The FBI has a long track record of using informers and agent provocateurs to entrap dupes who are then- described as dangerous terrorists. Mansour Arbabsiar, a naturalized US citizen, holding an, well, he's no he's no safer because I don't know why they would mention he's a US citizen because it doesn't really matter if he is. A naturalized US citizen holding an Iranian passport allegedly arranged for the assassination by contacting a man he thought worked for the Mexican drug cartel but was in fact a DEA agent. Arbabsiar was arrested on September 29th at New York's John F Kennedy International Airport. The first meeting which took place in May in Mexico was the first of a series that would result in an international conspiracy by elements of the Iranian government to pay the informant $1.5 million to murder the ambassador on U.S. soil, according to documents we filed uh, today in court, said Attorney General Eric Holder. According to the complaint, those discussions led by our Babsiar, or led our Babsiar with Shakuri's approval to facilitate the wiring of approximately $100,000 into a bank account in the United States as down payment for the attempted assassination. Golem Sh- Shakari, described as Arbavir's contact, has also been charged in connection with alleged plot, but remain- also remains at large. The plot was not Arbavir's idea; it was suggested by the DEA agent, who told our BFCR that he would <laughs> need four men to carry out the assassination that his price was $1.5 million, according to Channel 6 News. At the State Department, Hillary Clinton praised what amounted to entrapment. It was a terrific achievement by our law enforcement and intelligence communities. We will be consulting our friends and partners around the world on how we can send a very strong message that this kind of action, which violates international norms, must be ended. The U.S. will now use the case to call for more severe actions against Iran, or sanctions against Iran. The current sanctions are considered weak and unlikely to stop Iran from continuing its nuclear energy program. China, Russia, India, and Turkey have resisted more stringent sanctions than endanger business deals with Iran. In January, Israel's military spy agency, Chief Brigadier General Aviv Khatravi said the current sanctions are not working. Israel has been on the forefront of the ongoing effort to use military force against Iran under the pretext of preventing it from acquiring nuclear weapons. The Council on Foreign Relations also considers sanctions imposed by the United States ineffective. It said last July that if sanctions fail, the United States will have to look at using military force to stop uh, Iran's nuclear programs. If the sanctions past strategy doesn't compel Iran to the negotiating table in a meaningful way the united states and its allies will need to look for other options which include military force containment and fostering political change in iraq megan l o'sullivan of the cfr said in an interview at the 2010 bilderberg meeting held in spain a consensus was reached about attacking iran some of them in europe are saying that no we shouldn't do it but most of them are in favor of america airstri- american airstrikes on iran reported bilderberg's Bilderberg sleuth Jim Tucker, citing his inside sources. They're tilting heavily towards greenlighting a U.S. attack on Iran. The next step is taking the allegations to the united nation and push for stronger sanctions possibly to include military action the united states and saudi arabia and other allies are discussing the possibility of taking this to the security council because this is an assault on a foreign diplomat in the u.s said an unnamed diplomat reuters reports today additionally the state department has issued a worldwide travel alert for u.s citizens warning of the potential anti-u.s action reuters reports the u.s government assesses that this iran Iranian-backed plan to assassinate the Saudi ambassador may indicate a more aggressive focus by the Iranian government on terrorist activity against diplomats from certain countries to include possible attacks in the United States. It is said in a statement posted on its website.
0: Yeah, I mean, it is interesting. I mean, they were going to target a Saudi Arabian diplomat? I mean, Saudi Arabia... Uh, I mean, sure they produced fifteen of the supposed hijackers for 9/11, but that's those are like our best buddies there.
1: <laughs> you know,
0: sh- sure uh, women aren't allowed to to drive or vote, and they, uh, you know, they they buy uh, child slaves from the U.S. and other places for their rich oil sheiks to abuse. But I mean, that's that's a wonderful place over there. So obviously. You know, I Iran is the, the nexus of the you know, part of the axis of evil to to uh consider attacking one of the, the diplomats from there. But oh wait a second, it was actually a DEA agent. So you know, that's kind of another um basically they find someone like, Hey, do you not like the US or do you not like this country? Really? If we gave you a billion dollars, would you do something bad? Well yeah, I would. Oh, okay. And then <laughs> you, you foiled another terror attack. It's it's amazing. So,
1: yeah, yeah. It's interesting. At uh, one point five million, you know, uh, here's a hundred thousand dollars. You just say you'll do it. I'll do it. Okay, you're, that's it. We're sanctioning your country. It's over. Yeah.
0: And they they don't have to like almost do it or show that they have the ability to do it. It's like you know, someone could say, "Oh, I'm going to destroy the world." Does that mean you can arrest them and, like, you know, throw them in in jail for terrorizing the, you know, for he was going to destroy the entire world, uh, you know, I mean, you can make a, a claim or say you want to do something, but unless there's actually the ability to t- to do it there and the willingness to do it, there's no actual threat. But anyway.
1: Sure. Sure.
0: So we'll move on. This is an interesting story. Kind of because it's, it's a cousin of Queen Elizabeth II says abortion a form of eugenics. And I don't often agree with members of the royal family, so this is kind of a, a refreshing opinion. Uh, Lord Nicholas Windsor, the first cousin of Queen Elizabeth II, is creating a stir in England today with a new opinion piece in the London Telegraph newspaper calling abortion a form of eugenics. Windsor said his commitment to opposing abortion originated in his realization that an abortion means the destruction of a human being, saying, the cost of abortion is too high because the cost is paid in innocent human life. In a critique of the 1967 Abortion Act in the Daily Telegraph, he states, it hit me in the stomach that terminating a pregnancy equaled none other than the destruction of a human being. Mm. It knocked the wind out of me the first time, as it does every single time I think about it. Abortion is perceived as a problem, or as a solution to a problem called unwanted pregnancy. A real problem, then, a real solution, too. But it's not just a solution for all concerned. It leaves out of the picture the consequences for the entity about whose nature we've disagreed so passionately passionately in the past decades, he writes. Look at it this way. I was born in 1970. My dear mother would have been within her rights to find it inconvenient to have me. "'Bad luck, but she didn't. "'But my generation has had a close shave. "'Whether we were born depended on lots of factors, "'not just on a mother's decision, "'but also on the father's influence "'and that of the surrounding culture,' he continued. "'Others of my generation weren't that fortunate, "'and some of those were our siblings. "'That's why we take this thing seriously, "'if you want to know. "'We were the first generation "'that really were vulnerable in the womb. "'Surely the womb should be the safest place "'in the world to be. "'Not anymore.' So, how many don't have sisters and brothers whom the law, in my view, should have protected? And how many of those siblings didn't go on to compose the symphonies they should, by rights have composed? How many didn't go on to give birth in their turn? This is eugenics, isn't it? That's another story, he added. (laughs) Windsor is also joining Lord Alton of Liverpool to publicly oppose what they call a subversive campaign to establish abortion as an international human right by bullying, bullying nations like Ireland and others where unborn children are protected. The pair are supporting a new effort called the San Jose Articles, drawn up to counter international campaigns to push abortion. I see the San Jose Articles as an attempt to draw a line and fight back against a concerted movement which seeks to read a right to abortion into standing international law. The latter is being manipulated in the effort to craft such a right, Winter said. The articles aim to show that there is no right to abortion to be found in international law that would oblige such countries to conform or else. This is in spite of UN and other agencies' claims to the contrary. Frankly, officials and politicians in developing countries are being bullied into writing such a right to abortion into their domestic law. This project aims to help them fight back. So, I thought that was an interesting interesting story.
1: Certainly is. Certainly is. I... I, uh, I'm i speechless, really.
0: Yeah, that's... And I I wasn't, to be honest, I wasn't really aware of that push to get, uh, you, you know, the right to abortion into international law. I wasn't aware that the UN was, was pushing that, but it certainly makes sense.
1: Yeah, I was not aware of that either. I don't know, who are they going to push that on? The United Nations?
0: Well, the United Nations, yeah, is trying to institute it and then... It would be countries that have where abortion's illegal, like Ireland. Right, right. Which I mean, you know, people love to bash Catholics all the time, but the reason Ireland's were the reason that abortion's illegal in is because it's mainly a Catholic country. So, you know, you got to give the the Catholic Church credit for standing up against all of eugenics, really, but but especially abortion. Yeah. Uh, but what I mean is the, the Pope is uh, behind all the evil in the world. Uh, everything runs through the Vatican. Alex Jones works for the Vatican. Um, and, yeah, basically that. That's what I meant. Sorry.
1: Latest Freemason conspiracy, recruiting younger brothers. No self-respecting secret society can get by. This is from the Wall Street Journal, by the way.
0: Absolutely.
1: No, no self-respecting secret society can get by without a Facebook fan page anymore. Trans- that's transparently true of the Freemasons, renowned for their medieval blood oaths. Their often alleged plot to create a new world order. Their locked-door conclaves of U.S. presidents and power brokers in their boring pancake breakfasts. A menagerie of 19th century civic and social brotherhoods and their attendant sisterhoods lives on around the globe. The elks, the moose, the lions, the odd fellows. Freemasonry is the oldest of all, still the biggest, and in the public mind, about as penetrable as the mythic crypt beneath the ninth vault of Solomon's Temple. Interesting reference. Secret <laughs> secrecy gives masonry its mystique. Yet the masons have lately realized that they'd they'd be lost in oblivion if it weren't for the web. I looked for pictures. Matt Gallagher was saying of his internet search for a Masonic large. Lodge worth, worthy of joining. I really wanted to avoid a bunch of 80-year-olds. It was Thursday evening, almost time for fellowship night at the very young Lodge he did finally join. Braden, number 168 house on Shady Street in Column Temple, in a columned temple the Masons built in 1910. Mr. Gallagher is 32 years old in between jobs. He was initiated by Braden in 2009. Rose to Master Mason is now a Lodge educator, of, uh, Education Officer. It's a post that didn't exist for 290 years after masonry came out of its historical shadows in 1717 as a London club for enlightened gentlemen. Mr. Gallander's Masonic tag, if his digital function had one, might be Worshipful Webmaster. Wow. <laughs> I started a blog, a Facebook, and a Flickr, he said. Descending a narrow stairway to a faded meeting room with its old pool tables and a portrait of Brother George Washington. I want video essays on our site, he added. People need to know what they're getting into. Once a petitioner for Masonic membership didn't know what he was getting into until he had it all over his head. Until he had a hood over his head, a rope around his neck, and and was swearing never to reveal the secret handshake. The handshake is still secret. But now there are so many hints and giveaways about masonry's hocus pocus on the web, television, and in the movies that lodge tell petitioners not to peek or they'll spoil the fun. The order's main manual used to be Duncan's Ritual, published in 1866. Today, it's Freemasonry for Dummies by Christopher Haddup, published in 2005. We've got an explosive explosion of openness, says Mr. Haddup, and it started face it in a panic over membership. A generation of joiners, home from a war, boosted Masonic roles in America to 4 million by 1959. But in the 1960s, hippies turned off by the establishment mysticism. When the sons of hippies asked about Masonic masonry secrets, their boomer dads didn't have a clue. By the mid-2000s, fewer than 2 million members remained. Faced with a choice between going extinct and going public, the Masons went public. The order has no central authority <laughs> but grand lodges in several states put up billboards, ran TV commercials, and staged mass rituals, initiating hundreds of men at a time. Mr. Haddock calls it a travesty. Many initiates never even showed up. Many that did, he wrote in an internal paper, found a desperate group of aging members in endless meetings about bill-paying, bad food, and who was going to iron out the degree uniforms. <laughs> but some of, the, some of these young apprentices stayed on through the membership is down, uh, it just goes on and on and on. We'll just leave it there.
0: Well, and then it, it goes on to say that oh. part of the boost that Masonry's got is from National Treasure. Oh, there you go. And uh, the History Channel and Dan the, Brown novels. and The Lost like that.
1: Symbol, that's right.
0: Yeah, so. But I do have to say, because I see lots of, and there's, there's tons of Masonic groups. It's like, you know, you'd think it's just the Freemasons, but it's, it's tons of different and they're all Masonic. They're all, you know, kind of linked together. Um, uh, cause they, they meet at the hotel I work at, but in, I mean, obviously I don't see the inside of their meetings, but it, it is a, a group of, you know, older people that meet together for dinner and, and what have you. So I think, um, I think Masonry has kind of, probably to to some extent, I think political power, you know, the more political power an organization has, the more, I guess, satanic it tends to be, uh, because Satan wants to be where the political power is at. I think with when an organization kind of loses its power, you you know, in some ways, um, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that, in a lot of cases, it's really just kind of um, older folks going out to dinner and complaining and stuff. Um, it's not all uh, running the world type stuff, but that's that's not to say that that structure, especially in the past, wasn't a, a serious force, a serious political force in the world. Because I, I think it definitely was. There you go. Okay, let's take a look at. Uh, An interesting story kind of in this age of warfare that's becoming more and more robotic and mechanized you know in the in the old days if you wanted to go fight a war you actually had to carry your own sword and go hack someone up with it uh it was mainly you know fought between warriors and drones are are you know kind of many steps along and are really Uh, depersonalizing warfare even more and uh, this is an interesting story about why that could be a bad thing a computer virus has infected the cockpits of america's predator and reaper drones logging pilots every keystroke as they remotely fly missions over afghanistan and other war zones the virus first detected nearly two weeks ago by the military's host-based security system has not presented, prevented pilots at Creech Air Force Base in Nevada from flying their missions overseas, nor have there been any confirmed incidents of classified information being lost or sent to an outside source. But the virus has resisted multiple attempts to remove it from Creech's computers, network security specialists say, and the infection underscores the ongoing security risk in what has become the U.S. military's most important weapon system. We keep wiping it off, and it keeps coming back, says a source from familiar with the network infection, one of three that told Danger Room about the virus? We think it's benign, but we just don't know. Military network security specialists aren't sure whether the virus and its so-called keylogger payload were introduced intentionally or by accident. It may be a common piece of malware that just happened to make its way into these sensitive networks. Specialists don't know exactly how far the virus has spread, but they're sure that the infection has hit both classified and unclassified machines at Creech. That raises the possibility, at least, that secret data may have been captured by the keylogger and then transmitted over the public Internet to someone outside the military chain of command. Drones have become America's tool of choice in both its conventional and shadow wars, allowing U.S. forces to attack targets and spy on its foes without risking American lives. Unless, of course, the target is American lives like Anwar al-Awlaki, but I guess that's a separate issue. Since President Obama assumed office... He's not office,
1: an American. There's no, no, he's not a, there's was, no, there's no American he's an enemy.
0: He's an enemy combatant.
1: That's right. He lived in a compound.
0: Yes. Since President Obama assumed office, a fleet of approximately 30 CIA-directed drones have hit targets in Pakistan more than 230 times, all told. Mm. These drones have killed more than 2,000 suspected militants and, and civilians, according to the Washington Post. More than 150 additional Predator and Reaper drones under U.S. Air Force control watch over the fighting in Afghanistan and Iraq. American military drones struck 92 times in Libya between mid-April and late August. And late last month, an American drone killed top terrorist Anwar al-Awlaki, part of an escalating unmanned air assault in the Horn of Africa and Southern Arabian Peninsula. But despite their widespread use, the drone systems are known to have security flaws. Many reapers and predators don't encrypt the video they transmit to American troops on the ground. In the summer of 2009, U.S. forces discovered days and days and hours and hours of drone footage on laptops of Iraqi insurgents. A $26 piece of software allowed the militants to capture the video. The lion's share of U.S. drone missions are flown by Air Force pilots stationed at Creech, a tiny outpost in the barren Nevada desert, 20 miles north of a state prison and adjacent to a one-story casino. In a nondescript building, down a largely unmarked hallway, is a series of rooms, each with a rack of servers and a ground control station, or GCS. There, a drone pilot and a sensor operator sit in their flight suits in front of a series of screens. In the pilot's hand is the joystick, guiding the drone as it soars above Afghanistan, Iraq, or some other battlefield. Some of the GCSs are classified secret and used for conventional war zone surveillance duty. The GCSs handling more exotic operations are top secret. None of the remote cockpits are supposed to be connected to the public Internet, which means they are supposed to be largely immune to viruses and other network security threats. But time and time again, the so-called air gaps between classified and public networks have been bridged, largely through the use of disks and removable drives. In late 2008, for example, the drives helped introduce the Agent.BTZ worm to hundreds of thousands of Defense Department computers. The Pentagon is still disinfecting the machines three years later. One of the drives is now severely restricted throughout the military, or use of, you know, USB drives or whatever. But the basic creature was one of the exceptions until the virus hit. Predator and Reaper crews used removable hard drives to load map updates and transport mission videos from one computer to another. The virus is believed to have spread through one of these removable drives. Drone units at other Air Force bases worldwide have now been ordered to stop their use. So anyway, it kind of goes on and on. But um, I just thought that was interesting how they've, you know, you're fighting a computerized drone war with people sitting in a room in Nevada, dropping bombs on people in Afghanistan. And then this... Uh, computer viruses in there recording everything that's done, and yeah, I guess you know the story could just be taken at face value, just a random piece of malware that got caught in there, but um you know I think there's there's certainly some other possibilities, and you know it's it's just a scary reality. you've yeah. got a whole generation of kids raised on video games, and they go and play a video game that has you know, real-life consequences. And I, I find it hard to believe when they start, you know, and police departments are already trying to use these drones for surveillance in America, that when they start weaponizing these things to take out, you know, quote, insurgents or terrorists in America, that, uh, I find, you know, I kind of doubt that they're going to have a rough time finding people willing to do it. Because, it, you know, somebody depersonalized. you're sitting in there looking at a screen, you know, how, they just they drop bombs all day and they go home and you know go home to their wife or whatever whatever uh after driving back home it's it's so um it's certainly an easier lifestyle than the the people stuck over actually being in Iraq and Afghanistan
1: sure uh there's so many so many layers <laughs> i don't even know where to start um, first off, I don't understand how drones aren't war. Like we we never declare a war against Pakistan, but we just launch drone strikes, and everybody's like, oh, that's cool. No, no big deal. Like the American public's like, yeah, just launch drone strikes. It's better. Well, it's, because apparently the only thing that matters is the the bottom line of U.S. deaths or U.S. Right. people involved.
0: Yeah, if it, if there's no American casualties, it's not a war, Sam.
1: That's right. It's
0: right. You, you can It's like as long as you're just killing brown people, that is loving and pro democracy. But if, you know, if there's if there's Americans being killed too, then you, you have to admit it's a war.
1: True. True. And to to quote the great Stephen Colbert, um, you can't waterboard Americans. So yeah, <laughs> you can't. You can't. So um, another thing that's interesting about this, uh, like you said, there are several other possibilities. Um, Espionage, perhaps. I don't know who's advanced enough to do this, but espionage, maybe within our own government. I mean, who knows what this thing is? It could be anything. Uh, Like you said, it could just be malware. Um, I don't know.
0: And and, uh, go ahead. And I'm not a I'm not a techie enough person to know the other possibilities, but. You know that story. You're just getting kind of the official story on it. It's certainly good reporting, but but it's also, I mean, Noah Shachtman is is kind of an apologist for the military-industrial complex. He's very, you know, like oh, they got us on 9/11, so what are we going to do about it? Type, and that's kind of framed his reporting. Um, but it's it's certainly, yeah they don't know where the information is going or if it's going anywhere. And you certainly would think that would be useful information to someone out there of knowing every keystroke of all the, the drone bomber operators out there.
1: Sure. Sure. And then yeah, the techie side of me wants to know what operating system are they using? I mean, what are we getting infected with Matt? We on our defense is using a, an operating system and software that can be infected. I mean, uh i thought you know one in every four uh hackers work for the fbi i mean can't we get somebody in there who (laughs) who can program something that can't be infected with a virus this is i mean it's it's weird it's a it's an example of the incompetent government in like the worst places it's not that norad will have you know fail four times in one day i I don't believe that but then here the fact that we're using computer systems that oops we didn't notice that there was viruses out there i don't know man it's just it's hard to believe i guess
0: well and it could also set up a oh we didn't mean to uh you know, drop that giant bomb on. There you go. There Houston, you go. Texas, that was just a that was just a virus that yeah. that the Chinese put in our computer system, and that's why that happened. It's know?
1: extremely unfortunate that another black civil rights leader was killed, but he also looked like this other Muslim guy, and
0: right.
1: uh, <laughs> you know, it just the facial recognition software isn't that good yet. So, uh, but yeah,
0: but we're working on. We'll get the bugs out
1: and they will we'll kill a we'll kill a marijuana dealer near you.
0: That's right. Wipe, wipe them out.
1: Just right wipe off the
0: map. Speaking of someone who really, you know, if he had focused his attention on making drone bombers instead of you know, making uh mesmerizing products for the masses, he really could have had a a good career. And I'm talking, of course, about Steve Jobs. And this is from, um, oh let's see, healthandtime.com. It says, days before Apple founder Steve Jobs died, the New York Times read an op-ed piece proclaiming that you love your iPhone, literally. Our infatuation with iPhones is not mere addiction, but genuine love, the piece asserted, because brain scans proved it. There's no doubt that Jobs' computers were the first of their kind to engender such widespread and ardent passion. So why did 45 neuroscientists write an angry letter to the Times disputing the science behind the contention? The paradoxes of love have perhaps never been clearer than in our relationships with Apple products. The warm, fleshy desire we feel for such cold, hard, glassy objects... But Jobs knew how to inspire that inspire material lust. He knew that consumers want something that not only sparkles in awe, but also feels accessible, easy to use, an object with which we want to merge and feel one and the same. Oh, we want to merge with the machines. Skynet. Not, yeah. Not coincidentally, that's how people describe the experience of taking psychedelic drugs. It feels profoundly artificial yet deeply real both high-tech and earthy-crunchy, human and mystically divine, in a word, transcendent. Jobs had this experience. He said that taking LSD was one of two or three most important things he'd ever done. He said there were things about him that people who had not tried psychedelics, even people who knew him well, including his wife, could never understand. John Markoff reported for the Times, as a tested um, by the nearly spiritual devotion so many consumers have to jobs as creations, the former Apple chief, and indeed many other t- t- technology pioneers, appeared to have found enduring inspiration in LSD. Research shows that the psychedelic experience is, in fact, long-lasting. A new study published last week found that people who took magic mushrooms, or psilocybin, had long-term personality changes, becoming more open, more curious, and more intellectually engaged and creative. These personality shifts persisted more than a year after taking the drugs. This is like, I'm like looking on the side of the article for ads for like LSD regulars and stuff. But anyway, Um, but back to the notion that we quote love our iPhones. As the angry neuroscientist pointed out in their letter to the times, brain scanning technology can't identify love just by looking at what regions are active. It's not that simple. The op-ed writer said that objects, insular cortexes, a brain region associated with feelings of love and compassion, lit up in response to the sound of their phones, just as they would have responded to the presence of a romantic partner or family member. Problem is, the insula also lights up when people feel disgust and in about one-third of brain-scanning experiments in general. The op-ed tried to make the point that iPhone users' feelings about their devices surpassed addiction and entered the territory of love. But the truth is that addiction and love are probably indistinguishable, at least in the brain. Both feelings fill you with desire and line up your pleasure regions. If love isn't doing that for you, then you're doing it wrong. And brains don't have addiction pathways, as is so often suggested. Rather, the key regions involved in addiction have evolved to ensure that humans find pleasure and reward in experiences like eating, sex, and child-rearing, enough so that we survive and pass on our genes. Drugs merely mimic the body's own brain chemicals that underlie the experience of joy, desire, and connection, and perhaps using an iPhone. What do you th- What did you think about that article, Tim?
1: I I just thought it was interesting the the uh, psychedelic roots of of uh, the iPhone and the the kind of mind melding that people seem to be doing with it. I mean, I think there's something there. I think this. This, uh, reporter leaves a lot to be desired in, in several, <laughs> several ways, but, um, I think there, there is a, a certain, almost like a spell that's like cast over a person in their iPhone or their smartphone. You know, it, uh, anybody who's seen one, a person with one or, or ha- held one in their hand and, and played with it, you just, you kind of go into la-la land and, and you get kind of disconnected from reality. And it's just interesting to speculate at the, uh, the use of, uh, psychedelic drugs, uh, in the creation of, of the iPhone and, and whatnot.
0: Well, le- let me connect, connect the dots here, so to speak, and see if you buy the connection. Okay. Uh, if, if you go with Doctor Future's connection of of drugs and mm-hmm. the spiritual side of things, mm-hmm. uh, kind of as pathways for you know demonic spirits and what have you, to, uh, as ways of providing them influence, could you also make the argument that they're conduits? You know, yes, they're involved in developing this technology, but that may be as a result of spiritual influence and not the not good spiritual influence.
1: Yes, true. All of the above. Yes. So,
0: which I think, you know, if you look at our culture and the influence of technology on it, I mean, there's certainly good things about it too.
1: Okay. Well, actually, I'll just I'll quote a fellow uh, Revelations Radio uh, Network. Uh, podcast host who uh, said, uh, this is uh, Joe from Smart Faith Podcast, said that a society that is constantly seeking pleasure is a society that's not thinking.
0: Absolutely, yeah. And it's also, I think, it can be a substitute for, uh, for God and for the kind of the things that make us human. You know, we're we're detached from having to str- kind of struggle to survive, and sure, uh, you know, and then thinking about the universe and how we got here, and um, God, and and the big questions, and it's like we're so capable of filling up our lives with entertainment, you know, and it's, it's easy to do it, and I think you got to look at stuff like the iPhone as as a major conduit of doing that. I can remember. Uh, you know, family vacation driving to Minnesota, and I couldn't really read because I'd get car sick, and I just had to sit there and, like, stare out the window for hours and hours, <laughs> and I'm not saying, like, like, you know, those are the good old days, but at the same time, even, you know, my childhood, I didn't have access to constant entertainment, and now it's like, you know, kids are watching DVDs or doing something, or um there's no more... I don't know. Almost no more boredom or no more having to deal with boredom uh, without the help of technology, I guess, is kind of where I'm going with that.
1: Sure, sure. I was uh, watching a a documentary the other day uh, about technology. Well, uh, before I say that, about your uh, uh, substitute for God thing, you know, instead of looking for answers and kind of praying for the answers of, you know, certain things or, or questions that you may have, you could just Google it. You know, and googling, googling it will uh, give you. Who
0: is God? Oh, okay. Google told me there.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, also, uh, you know, just, just even the answer to easy, even easier questions throughout your day to day life. You know, you just Google it. You know, like Lord, please bring me a mate. Or then again, I could just Google it and look up a dating service. I don't even know. But my other thing I was going to say was the documentary uh, talks about. Uh, technology and its effect on people and they essentially took a bunch of uh, kids from MIT who these days are totally multitasking all the time they're on gmail chat they're on text messages they're on Facebook they're on all this and they're all on all of these things most of the time um, during class and so they're Mm -hmm. listening listening and doing this and so they took all these people who are you know, MIT students, so they're obviously, you know, f- fairly smart, you know, some of the more intelligent of uh, college students, and they tested them for their abilities to um, uh, concentrate, stick, st- you know, stick to one thing, uh, problem solve, and then also tested their abilities for uh, multitasking. And lo and behold, their concentration levels were lower than that of most of the average Americans as well as their problem solving uh, techniques were actually lower than of those of MIT students from 20 years prior as well as they are also uh they were also um unable to uh multitask and they actually proved kind of proved that multitasking is actually uh impossible nobody can multitask and the, the the myth of multitasking is that you can do two things at once just as well as doing it, you know, if you were doing just the one thing. And it's, and it's said essentially that you can't, you know, that you are going to be losing abilities in, in one of those things, even if it's talking and driving or whatnot. So anyway, all of that just to say that, yes, I think that our society is losing the ability to, you know, sit down and, and think through developed thoughts you know to uh to think through uh problem solving um and i'm i'm a i'm a good example you know i'm addicted to the internet more or less i mean i i i work through the internet i you know do podcasting i i have friends through the internet i have friends in real life as well and i try and you know get out and do stuff as much as possible but uh, i don't read as much as i should and you know after a full day of being on the internet you know it's uh, it's an it's a different feeling than a, than a, than a full day of reading and it's uh, a little bit more chaotic and a little less focused
0: yeah absolutely and there's it really does your brain does process it differently um information through the internet or through tv and uh, those two things are different but then also that's dif- a different experience than reading a book and there you know so we're definitely kind of shaping our own brains by the way we take in information so it's kind of it's an interesting experiment but it's an experiment that we have to live the the consequences of If you have any news stories or tips that you would like Andrew and Tim to cover, please send them to News at gmail.com. Please check out the other podcasts on Revelations Radio Network. Thank you for listening.